Welcome back to the thus far unnamed podcast. Uh, and, and it's unnamed, Chris, because we didn't want to get Because cute. you don't like good ideas. <laughs> and that is a fact. I don't like your ideas. <laughs> it's just interesting how you use the word good instead of my ideas. Um, because, Chris, we, honestly, we started this podcast because we, we just felt that there were some things we needed to talk about. We weren't concerned with branding it or selling it. We just thought there are some things that we need to talk about that we can't talk about from the pulpit yep. on a regular basis. Um, and quite honestly, we're recording these podcasts during June, which is uh, celebrated by many as Pride Month in the United States. And so much of the celebration involving Pride Month has to do with some of the ideas that we've talked about so yep. far. Uh, looking inside yourself to find yourself always expressing yourself to be authentic as the ultimate goal. Like so much of, of what people celebrate in this month has to do with these underlying feelings. And, and one thing I hope, Chris, is that we are giving people resources to look underneath a lot of modern ideas so that they can themselves and help their kids say, here is what is fundamentally off right. about the idea, rather than just kind of having a that's wrong reaction. Shut the door. We want to know why is that wrong? So we can have discourse, so we can teach our kids, so we can be confident with one another. So in our last episode, we talked about authenticity, uh, something that can be very good when when it leads to us being honest with our friends, when it leads to us not being hypocrites, but something that can be really troubling when it's the ultimate thing, as in whatever I feel I do. Uh, that's, that's a pretty enslaving mindset to have is whatever desire I have, I act out. And it's, it, that's originated somewhere. I think that's maybe one of the big goals of our conversations, Chris, is to show people that things they take for granted originated somewhere, in this case with a couple of French philosophers. Um, we mentioned in the last episode that Rene Descartes came up with the idea of I think, therefore I am. And he came up with this idea because Descartes believed that he could know something, but he wanted to know what he could definitely know without a doubt. And so he starts to look at different things in his life, like the existence of God or different truths about the universe or truths about other human beings. And he he keeps going, I can't know that for sure. 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 And then he looks inwards and he starts to think about things about himself, and he goes, I can't know that for sure. But what he ultimately says is, if I'm thinking, I can't doubt that I'm thinking. Because if I'm thinking, then I'm thinking. And therefore, I am a person. Right. So I can't ever doubt that I'm real because I'm thinking. What this does is it gives Descartes more than just a, like some sort of flag to hold on to in the storm. It makes Descartes inner monologue, inner mind, the ultimate thing in his life. Because then he's going to go and develop his entire view of the world based on starting with his own mind. Um, which, when you think about how many human beings are in the world, is it, it's a pretty... A lot of minds. <laughs> yeah. And it's a lot of minds in different places and different cultures. So Rene Descartes is looking in and saying, all I can know is that I'm thinking. What do I think about? And he goes outwards. And so in this, in this episode, what we want to talk about is how we began to make the inner the priority, the inner mind, the inner soul, the, the most important thing. Um, I want to say one more thing, Chris, and then I'll, I'll probably allow you to talk at some point this morning. Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, which is where we're getting a lot of these ideas from, uh, at least for conversation, he asked the question at the beginning of his chapter. 
he says, does the mind have to be made to conform to the body? Or does the body have to be made to conform to the mind? Now, this is a very, very, what's called a litmus test. It tells you a lot about how you view physical truths and mental truths and universal truths. Right. And he's asking this because he says that if you were to go to a doctor 60 years ago and say, biologically, I'm a male, but I believe I'm a female, the doctor would say, we need to bring your mind into alignment with your body. Right. So there's something wrong here, and what's wrong here is your mind. Now, if you go to a doctor and say, I'm a male, but I believe I'm a female, the doctor will say, we need to bring your body into alignment with your mind. And that's an incredibly seismic shift to say that 50 years ago, there was a physical reality of the body that, that dictated everything else. Right. But now the reality is inside. Chris, what else do we learn from Descartes as far as this shift to the inside being the thing that we use to determine everything else? So, I think, and I'm not trying to, not trying to. Really <laughs> I was wondering be, if you existed. There. So yeah, exactly. I'm glad you think. So I do, I do exist. But I, I think that when we evaluate Descartes' position, we can't we can't divorce his position from everything else that was happening in the world at that time. And what's strange about the Enlightenment period is that it it gave us a lot of concrete categories to think in ways that perhaps in the past people had never really thought about thinking. Okay, but, give me, give me yeah. a two-sentence definition of the Enlightenment. Probably everyone's heard the phrase, but sure. give me a two-sentence definition of the Enlightenment. Two sentences, I don't know if I can do two sentences. What I'll, what I'll say is the Enlightenment was a time in which uh, man's ability to kind of perceive and understand the world around him became prioritized in the world of philosophy, in the world of thinking. Now, this type of stuff had obviously been bandied about for for centuries during the Greco-Roman period, but when it when it comes to the Enlightenment period in the West, it was basically uh, I don't even want to say a school, but it was it was a, an overwhelming thought pattern that said we can understand the world. Now, to be to be tell me if I'm uh, helpful here. That is a shift away from some sort of God will tell us how to understand the world yes. to we, without the help of something outside of us, can understand yes. the world. That's the, the radical shift in yes. the Enlightenment. Yes, it's an anthropocentric world. Ooh, anthropo-human, yes. centric, in the middle. At the center, yeah. yeah. And so prior to this, and, and I, what's hard about this is that there's, there's always something, generally speaking, that we can identify as may, maybe being a good shift. And, you know, as those who function theologically within the Reformed tradition, we value the thought life of the individual significantly. It's very important to us. It's one of the reasons we are taking time to think through these things. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, I, and so I think if you look at um, the history, and, and, and now I will say it like it is, you look at the history of the Roman Catholic Church from the 17th century backwards, uh, you do have people like Aquinas uh, who, who show up and they're very heavily influenced even by philosophers, by uh, Aristotle and whatnot. But generally speaking, the idea of thinking through things was very much reserved for a small minority of the clerical population. And the Enlightenment kind of opened up the world. And, and it was tied, I think, in large part to the printing press being mm -hmm. invented and the ability to disseminate ideas and information, pamphlets, books going out. The American Revolution was 
significant consequence of the Enlightenment. Thinking frankly. isn't in a small sphere anymore. Yes. Thinking is the thing everyone gets to Yes, do. it becomes popularized. And, and that's a good thing. I, I think people should think, and that's a good thing. So when we, when we look at Descartes, there's this immediate, and, and as, as Christian people, we would say that sin always has consequences and affects us in a fallen world. We don't live in a perfect world, so it's always touching all of our lives in some capacity. So with Descartes, there's the goodness about trying to understand the world, but um, you know the, the seminary that, uh, that you're going to, that I went to, talks a lot about, you know, you can only know the world rightly if you understand it from God's perspective. And that's true. Mm -hmm. And so you see in, in the Christian philosophers of the 17th and 18th centuries, this emphasis on seeing the world rightly through God's eyes, but then you see non-Christian philosophers who even in some respects deliberately rebel against the idea of Christian thought are saying, nope, we're going to remove that and we're going to drill down into human experience, mm -hmm. human perception, and, and if that becomes the, the filter through which people are understanding the world, you're always going to see it colored individually. Yeah. And you're always going to see it instead of being a cohesive uh, whole that makes sense because there's an author who is writing the story, who is, who's given us yeah. um, boundaries. You get Descartes saying, well, guess what? You can choose your own adventure now. Yeah, so two enormous shifts. One is from receiving information from the outside to determining information on the inside. Yep. Uh, and the other is from definite information to indefinite. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, in the pre-enlightenment thought world, you have, there, are, there is definitely, what is the, is it Star Trek, the truth is out there? Is, I don't know if you're a Trekkie. I'm not a Trekkie at that's all. That's the problem so. with listening to someone else talk about Star Trek. I'm not a Trekkie either, but I think that's the quote. <laughs> is, is there's this idea that the truth is out there, we have to go find it, which means there is truth and we can find it right. and it's out there. The Enlightenment switch, particularly with Descartes, notice how he starts to say, I can't be certain about that. I can't be certain about that. I can't be certain about that. And what he's doing is he's saying, there's not truth out there, and we can't be certain about truth. And that's a, that's a big shift to what's called subjectivity. And that's where you talk about being an individual is maybe if we boil this all down to what someone might hear on a daily basis, it's your truth versus my truth. Mm -hmm. there's, not, there's not a truth that is, like, like imagine a sphere that's above Chris and Josh, and it's called the truth. And we have to figure out what it's like to be in this orb. Right. Instead, we each have our orb. Um, and, and I can't violate your truth and you can't violate my truth. Yeah. And what we want to show is that that's not always been the case. That is, that's birthed out of this idea from Rene Descartes. And, and if we don't step back to weigh that idea and see what the problems are with it, then we'll just kind of live in this culture that's saying you can define for yourself what's true and what's false. Um, and that is, is initially birthed with Rene Descartes. One thing I think is, is, is very important to touch on here, Chris, is, is the idea of science. Okay? Science. What Carl Truman helpfully notes is that okay, the question was, does the body have to become like the mind or does the mind have to be brought to be like the body, right? And 
the general principle now is you want to bring the mind to be conformed, or the body to be conformed to the mind, right? Bring the physical to be conformed to the emotional or the mental or the psychological, the inner. What Truman helpfully says is that is not a scientific position, right? Science is concerned with observations. Science is concerned with maybe studying how synapses fire in the mind and how, uh, how a human thinks or, uh, or how brains function or how a body functions. Science cannot be and is not concerned with what is ultimate, physical or mental. Right. But what has happened, Chris, is, is people will at the same time say, well, this is just science. But also, the mind can trump the body, which seems to be directly at odds with, with science, right? How do you see this interplay of the prioritizing the mental, the inner, the emotional over the physical, while at the same time saying the ultimate thing in society is science? Because they seem to be opposed to one another. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we live in a fallen world, and so biology is corrupted just as much as anything else. You know, when we, when we see physical deformities occur, um, you know, when a, a child might be born with physical deformity, that's a clear reminder that, you know, biology is messed up. Mm -hmm. We also, when we take a look at how people think about the world around them, it's, you know, we can talk about generally agreed upon bad things. If somebody says, okay, I was born desiring to eat human flesh, we pull back from that and say that's not acceptable, right? And so... We had talked last time about these kind very of guardrails. Yeah, yeah, very bad, very bad, very bad. So there are guardrails that people do function in, um, and and however much we may think that that other people influence our patterns of, of ethics and morality, you know, leave that to the individual to kind of come to terms with. But the reality is, we do uh, in Christianity. We just simply acknowledge that it is what it is. We've got a book that tells us what that looks like, and we always have to come into conformity with it. Now, when it comes to world in which we live now and how we you're seeing the word science being used what's what's interesting and I think going back to probably like the 90s there was a concerted effort on the part of people to identify a gauge mm -hmm. right and so as I was in my early teens hearing about homosexual behavior and activity, the word that was used was sexual preference. And sexual preference was talked about, and, and that kind of held sway for quite some time. And then in the 2000s shifted to sexual orientation because the idea that somebody would choose to do this was anathema to the idea that somebody was, quote, born this way. And if somebody's born this way, there has to be something scientific behind it mm -hmm. because it's not scientific to say, well, what you think must be what's true, because nobody can hold that at the end of the day as a tenable option, mm -hmm. because people think all kinds of wild ideas, and an individual might change how they think at any given time during the course of their life. So we can't pinpoint on that. So we, we look and say, well, there has to be a gay gene. We've now come to the place where people will say, you know, they may feel internally, and this become more acceptable to people. Point. They may feel internally like they were born in the wrong body. But mm -hmm. even at the same time, as I've heard people talk about this issue, there are people who will go very much to the wall on the point of, well, you can determine a transgender individual's 
proclivity towards feeling like they're born in the wrong body because you can see the brain of a transgender individual functioning more like the brain of somebody who has genitalia that mm -hmm. they are desiring, right? And so let's say they, they have more of a male brain than a female brain, which begs the question, what is a male brain? What is a female brain if, yeah. if as a culture we've deconstructed the idea of gender being anything other than a social construction? So there's an inconsistency there, which is let's appeal to a scientific norm right. to try to say there's a male brain and a female brain, and you might act like one more or the other, and if you're a female that seems like you have a male brain, but, but what you're saying is there, there needs to be some sort of standard there. Right. And if there's a standard, then we need to follow the standard. And so I think that's where, um, this is not the sexiest thing to say, but I want our people to be looking for consistency. And I think one of the ways that you can spot a bad way to view the world is when you can spot inconsistency. So for instance, a, a world that says, like, look at the country right now, and you say, someone might believe at the same time that half of the country, whatever the other political party is, is immoral and selfish, while also believing human nature is fundamentally good. There's an inconsistency there, right? right? And, I, I, and we just want to say it for what it is, is you can't believe both things. Correct because either there needs to be some sort of radical problem that is causing half the country to be selfish and immoral, or human nature is really good and you just you have a preference that they don't have, but both can't be true. Right. And so w what we wanna be able to do is say, it's really inconsistent to say, all that matters is what I feel and all that matters is science. Because fundamentally, science is going to be hopefully based in objective standards of truth that don't change. You would hope a surgeon functions that way, right? Right. Um, and I, Chris, I think you, you mentioned a really good point here is one of the incredible problems with basing our actions not on a standard that, that kind of tells us what's good and bad, but on our inner feelings, is we change. Right, right. I mean... One, I think the male brain is not fully developed until like 25. So, so you're saying there you're going to act stupidly for 25 years. Um, but even then, I mean, I know 65-year-olds that are learning life lessons. And so it, it really negates the fact that we're always constantly learning. And so if at any point we kind of in the spirit of Descartes say, right now what I think is the ultimate truth then what we're saying is, what I thought was the ultimate truth 10 years ago, I was real wrong. Right. And I will be wrong now because in 10 years I'm going to be wrong. And that's illustrated by the fact that, like you said, in the 90s it was sexual preference, then it's sexual orientation, and now it's sexual identity. Yeah. And so even in that progression, there's been three times we've been wrong. Right. If you, if you buy into that kind of philosophy of sex and gender. So... If we're looking at an inward-focused morality, it's going to be inherently inconsistent. It's going to be inherently wrong a lot of the times. It's going to be wavering. And, and we want to say there are better options than that. Chris, in the, in the time we have left, okay, we sent out four episodes. I got a little bit of feedback. One of the feedbacks I got is you guys use words that are too big. And I thought, but I like those words. Sure. 
So we're going to keep using them. We're just going to define them. Yes. That's our deal, is, is we're nerdy. We like big words. We think big words are helpful. We're just going to define them. Bet. So here's two words that Chris texted me, and then we're going to see if he could define them. Chris, you texted me that you thought all of this boiled down into the term existential exceptionalism. Go. Yes. So I, I, I will tell you those words I thought of while I was watching a t-ball game. So lest anybody thinks I was in an ivory tower trying to think of something fancy, I was literally just watching my daughter's t-ball game. So, you know, bear in mind, you can too also have thoughts like this when you are doing You too activities. can be thinking about philosophy during t-ball. You bet. You bet. And, you know, we talked about expressive individualism a few weeks back. And expressive individualism, the idea is like the individual must be expressed in order to be authentic, right? And so it's mm -hmm. like it's a natural progression of a self and self-authenticity. And then it, it, you have to, if, if you're going to be a genuine self, you have to express that. Yeah, here's the progression. You look inside. You find out who you are. You act it out. If you act it out, then it looks the same way as it looks inside. You are authentic. Yeah. Boom. Yes, and so as, as I was thinking through this and, and, and thinking through the this, this second chapter that, that we're processing the ideas that are presented there, thinking, okay, if, if that is the outward action, if that's the behavior that is prized, I'm thinking, okay, what, what can define the ethical and moral priority that exists within that world? And... As I thought about that, and I thought about how does an individual function within that context, I'm like, if you feel good about yourself in that worldview, there has to be something that you're appealing to. So like, we would say as Christians that you should feel good when you're honoring God. And there's an ethical standard that God puts in place for us <clears throat> when we look at the, the scriptures and we see, okay, this is how one ought to live. Yeah. And we can say, yes, this is good to live this way. And so I'm thinking, in, if, a, in, in the danger of demeaning humanity, it's like a dog that's excited when it brings the ball back. Yeah, yeah. The dog has a master. The dog listens to the master. There's an inherent excitement when the dog obeys Correct. the master. Correct. There's inherent chaos when the dog does not obey the yes. master. Yes, yes. As humans who are created by a creator, there's an inherent uh, integrity and joy when we act the way we were created to act. Yes, yes. And so for... For this worldview that we're discussing, the, the predominant worldview, or a German word, fancy word, you know what I'm going to say? Zeitgeist? Zeitgeist, yes, zeitgeist. Put that in your pocket. Which means? It means the spirit of the age. Mm. The spirit of the Zeit age. of the geist. The zeit of the geist. And the spirit of the age, it's, it's just the general atmosphere in which we live, ethically and morally and, and philosophically. I, I, was, I was trying to piece this together, and I thought, existential exceptionalism. Now, why does this matter? It, it matters because the individual has nothing to appeal to necessarily outside of himself or herself at this point. So you can't say the best course of action to take that we can evaluate the rightness of behavior and be evaluated on the basis of what somebody outside of you is saying. And so... As in, I can't tell Chris what right behavior is. Yes, I, what is best. I can tell Chris what I wouldn't do. Yes. I can tell Chris what I have a distaste for, right. but I can't tell Chris that he's doing a wrong thing. Yes. And so this is the, the difference between your truth versus my truth, now your right versus my right. 
and by right, I don't mean rights. I mean what is right to do, what is morally and ethically right. And again, there's, it, it falls apart, obviously, when you get to certain areas of, of, of behavior and practice mm -hmm. that endanger other people and their physical well-being. So that's a guardrail that this environment has put in front of people. But really, if you're going to tell somebody what is the best thing to do for them, we hear the fancy, fancy word, be yourself, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's not too fancy, but that's what people say. They think, Could you define be yourself? It's about yourself. as confusing as existential. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we're probably okay without a, a prolonged definition of be yourself. John Piper would do 14 minutes 14 on the minutes, word be. Maybe 15. Yeah. Maybe 15. And when it comes to this idea of existential exceptionalism, what it really boils down to is that the individual, the existence of the individual is so crucial to understand you know, we, we talk about authenticity with the last episode mm -hmm. and everything. The existence of the individual is so inviolable that, that the, the most central and cardinal tenet of morality within this environment is to say you can do no violence to the individual. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean violence physically. That means violence to that individual sense of existential significance. And so... So if you're... To, to dumb it down... Mm -hmm. If you're telling Chris what, what is inward in him is wrong, then you're telling him his existence is wrong. Yes, and, and that is quickly becoming... And maybe you can see what that looks like in our society. Yes, absolutely. Your, your sexual behavior is wrong, that means my nature is wrong. Yes, yes. Well, actually, the conversation was about your behavior. Yes. Right? But behavior now, because of expressive individualism, behavior is simply a reflection of who we feel ourselves to mm -hmm. be. And because there are no guards or guidelines anymore that exist externally... It's up to the individual to determine what is best for them. And so for existential exceptionalism, it's to say the individual is exceptional, always, hmm. always. Every individual is exceptional. Now, that being said, unless they violate the exceptionalism of another individual. And why I think this matters for us so and how we think about it. the sin of our society would be violating someone else's existence. Yes, exactly, which is why the idea of a hard and fast set of standards morally or even philosophically has become so distasteful to people because if you say it's not right to do this and somebody says but that's core to who I am you have you know this is where and I guess I'll get into the, this idea it's probably really one briefly. of the reasons why it's hard to disagree with anyone right yes now. exactly you know it, so so for instance if someone tells me that Christianity is a hoax I don't like it, right? But, but I don't believe that I have worth in the world because my thought process have led me to Christianity. Right. I believe it's true. I believe God gives me worth. Um, but if I did believe that my worth in the world was because inwardly I feel that Christianity is true and someone said, it's a hoax, then my world is rocked. They, yes. That's a violation of my inward feelings. And I think that is one of the reasons why it is so doggone hard to disagree with anyone yeah. right now yeah. because if you disagree with their actions or their thoughts the feeling is you have just eliminated my personhood right yeah um, and there are two terms that i think people regularly hear that fit into this this ethical you know if you feel like using it go for it but of existential exceptionalism the idea of safe spaces and hate speech hmm. because hate speech used to be defined as 
speech that's intended to incite violence yeah. directly against an individual and the, the physically. The physical act of violence really needed to be there. Yes. Or, or almost there in order yes. for it to be hate speech. Exactly. But the idea of somebody hating another individual is just a matter of personal freedom. You know, like, if you choose to hate somebody, well, that, that's just life. That's life, right? But now we've moved beyond the idea of hate speech being something that is inciting a physical violence, and it is hate speech exists when it reflects the hatred of an individual's part toward another individual mm -hmm. on the basis of something that is so inviolable in that individual. And then safe spaces would be places where you can guarantee that individuals who feel threatened by the thoughts or values of other people can go to be sheltered mm -hmm. from the threat of other thoughts, the threat of other ethics. And so it's really strange how it's happened, but I mean, to see it in academia, that's, that's become the primary environment where this has existed, where previously, even in enlightenment philosophy, competing ideas were prioritized. Mm -hmm. But now we've, we've kind of melted everything down into feelings and emotions so that it is, it is no longer even valid to talk about competing thought patterns because thought patterns don't matter unless they reflect how you feel. Yeah, and I would, I would say that Chris, you and I, um, we're not radically different age, but we're a little bit different in, in age bracket. We're from different parts of the country. Uh, we did different things in college. We've got different stories of how we became pastors. We've got different uh, upbringings as far as how politics played. I mean, you, you were engaged enough in politics to get to a political science major. I was so disengaged from politics that I, I didn't even know how my mom voted until I was in my 20s. Mm. Uh, and, and if you and I were chiefly concerned about the other person's feelings in our conversations, we actually, the past two years, we would have really had a lack of conversations. Right. But each Monday we get together and sometimes I try to prove you wrong and sometimes you try to prove me wrong and right. we exchange ideas and we want one another to see how their ideas might be misguided or um, misunderstanding. We call that sharpening. Yeah. It's a good thing. And, and ultimately, I would say that two years later, I am a better person right. for having been proven wrong multiple times. Sure. That type of prospect has been eliminated because for you to show that I'm wrong is for you to show that my person is wrong. Yes, you are invalid. So where I think that there's maybe a couple things to wrap this up that I think this matters for... Um, just the average listener. Number one is Kevin DeYoung wrote a helpful article about how the LGBT, um, I'll say propaganda, because propaganda or persuasion maybe, I'm not trying to be hateful, but just say like what, what, what the LGBT community wants to put forth for you to believe. Um, there's, a, there's been a really smart shift away from morality to inner feelings. So much so that the average even Christian will say, well, I don't know about Pride Month, but I don't want someone to feel bad about themselves. Right. So they should, I want people to feel good about themselves. So I think I should at least not be opposed to Pride Month because they're just trying to feel good about them. And so you can see how even a, a sincere Christian is trying to work through like, well, how do I relate to this? I don't want someone to feel bad about right. themselves because the conversation is not about is an action wrong. The conversation is about should or should not I be ashamed of myself. And most decent people say, I don't want you to be ashamed of yourself. Where the Christian can come in is to say, 
all of us have actions and heart motives that we're ashamed of, right? All of us. You and I regularly discuss things in our hearts that we wish were not there, and we need to repent of them. We need to ask God to change us, but we know because God tells us he loves us, because God tells us he's created us, because God assures us he will change us, because God gives us Christ to wash us of those, we don't have to be afraid of things we're ashamed right. of. Um, and I think the Christian needs to, needs to be able to say, I can look at someone and say their moral actions are wrong without saying they're, like, without doing violence to their, right. their person. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, I think the other thing is just Christians need to know that we are no longer in a time period where generally people say, I need to receive truth from outside of me. And that's a fundamental distinction because when, when we're talking about sex or gender, we're ultimately telling people someone else has authority to tell you what to do with your body. But right now, because of Descartes and the philosophies that came from him, most people would say, no. Only I can tell me what to do with my body. And as Christians, we want to be able to say, uh, one of the most dangerous places to be is for every individual to get to determine what's right. Because you can justify all manner of evil by saying, I get to determine what's free. And I'll, I'll give you guys a litmus test. This is a litmus test I use a lot. And I don't use it playfully. If someone gives you an argument, see if you can substitute racism for sexuality. And if it doesn't work, then they don't mean it. Um, so if the argument is you should act outwardly how you feel inwardly, and it's about sex, say, should I do that if I'm racist? No. Okay, so we need a better argument. Right. Um, if, if someone says every individual can determine what's true, I say, okay, does that, does that make sense if I'm racist? No. Right. And so actually I think because... Because our society at the same time is so passionate about sexual freedom and so passionate about racial equality, we can, we can tactfully use racism as a litmus test to say, I don't think you actually believe this. We all believe that someone outside of us can say, you shouldn't treat another human being differently because of their skin color. Right. Which means they also can say, there are things you shouldn't do with your body. Right. So I hope those are some helpful tips that you can use to, to weigh through some of these arguments. Uh, we've got so much more to unpack in our next two episodes. I hope you'll keep joining us.